Welcome to Science or Fiction, a podcast by sci-fi author Michael James Sharon. In this program, we'll be discussing science, fiction, and the often blurred spaces between the two. Here we try to dispel common scientific misconceptions by both Hollywood and the media, even that which is meant to be educational. My background includes a Bachelor of Science and Master of Arts in Physics with experience in both R&D and production. I hope you enjoy these podcasts, and if there are comments or input, please direct them via contact page for my website, michaelsbookcorner.com. A listener to the late great podcast, The No State Project by Mark Stevens, wrote in telling him of two ninth grade girls who outsmarted everyone in mock courtroom proceedings. One girl was the accused and the other was her counsel. The following question was posed. What facts or evidence are there to prove that the law applies to this defendant? None of their teachers objected as they all assumed the question to be trivial. They were confounded when no one could find any facts to prove that the laws applied i.e. that jurisdiction existed in the first place. Unlike their counterparts in actual courtrooms, these teachers were enlightened enough to entertain reason. The girl was found innocent for lack of evidence. Mr. Stevens, along with his audience, enjoyed some success over the years with this approach in actual courtrooms in a number of countries. He has a good supply of documented proof of these hard-won gains. As an advisor to clients, Mr. Stevens et al., have witnessed tantrums and tirades from black-robed maniacs and collusion between judge and prosecutor. Included were threats and imprisonment for contempt, and in some cases, 72-hour lockups for psychiatric analysis. This is how the state reacts to the simple question, where is your proof? In another program, Mr. Stevens conducted a 45-minute interview with Canadian law professor Robert Diab, where he posed the same question. In a rare instance of candor and genuine intellectual curiosity, Mr. Diab had to admit that jurisdiction was based only on force, not on any evidence presented by prosecutors. In short, quote, the law applies because we said so. This is argument by assertion, which is a logical fallacy. According to Wikipedia, quote, political science is the scientific study of politics. It is social science dealing with systems of governance and power and the analysis of political activities, political thought, political behavior, and associated constitutions and laws." The same Wikipedia article also states, in contradiction, political science, possibly like social sciences as a whole, can be described as a discipline which lives on the fault line between the two cultures of the academy, the sciences and the humanities. Thus, in some American colleges, where there is no separate school or college of arts and sciences per se, political science may be a separate department housed as part of a division or school of humanities or liberal arts, whereas classical political philosophy is primarily defined by a concern for Hellenic and Enlightenment thought. Political scientists are also marked by a great concern for modernity and the contemporary nation-state, along with the study of classical thought and as such share more terminology with sociologists. This later section of the article essentially excludes political science from true science and places it in the category of liberal arts. Why then is there no explanation for such studies being called a science? As with psychiatry and other pseudosciences, the term has been co-opted and thus demeaned such that most are unable to distinguish between fad-driven conjecture and sound reasoning. 
How is political science a science at all? Isn't it just a way to puff up ivory tower discussions concerning who, how, and when the public is being forcibly fleeced? Studies and observations such as watching chimpanzees in the wild could be very useful, even if not included in the so-called hard sciences. This is how we should categorize such studies, as behavioral only, with limited predictive power. A true science must first be able to quantify and second, provide predictive models for the phenomenon in question. In physics, we know that if we reduce the volume of gas, then the pressure will increase. Given certain conditions, a particular action will always yield the same result. This is called repeatability. Outcomes for human beings may only be guessed in a gross statistical sense, as predictability for any single case is sketchy. The original term, one which was in use for hundreds of years before science became a convenient buzzword, is political economy. Likely, this is where a change was required as the entwined nature of money and power is far more accurate description than science. Political economy unambiguously gets at the heart of the matter. Politics is based largely on the most primal instincts of human beings. In fact, it may be confined primarily to that tiny reptilian part of our brain. Let's return to the working definition for analysis. Political science is a scientific study of politics. It is a social science dealing with systems of governance and power, and the analysis of political activities, political thought, political behavior, and associated constitutions and laws. We have the terms political science and social science. Again, these are not hard sciences, but a recording of herd mentality. As for scientific study, that is open to interpretation. Granted, statistical tools may be employed but there seems to be no attempt at predictive models or the determination of the fundamentals involved, i.e. that which is quantifiable or explainable in simpler terms. Also of note is the use of the words constitution and laws. Here we have obfuscation of the highest order, as most people believe that a law passed by Congress has the same weight and backing as the law of gravity. The U.S. Constitution is, in part, alleged to be based on what Locke called the social contract. In reality, this concept is equally nebulous. As opposed to an actual contract between individuals or parties, the social contract is based on vox et praetoria nihil, Latin for voice and nothing more. In essence, it is hearsay. Yet people speak of the social contract as if it were a real entity, such as the contract between the buyer and seller of a house. Applying science to what we call government quickly reduces it to absurdity, nothing more than a collective religious hallucination. Though vastly limited in their tools and technology, the early Greek philosophers and those much farther back in antiquity grasped the concept of the logical proof. That is, a conjecture made by anyone must not be simply accepted as truth without investigation. Those making the assertion must have facts or evidence to back it up. This is what Mr. Stevens demonstrated in so many ways throughout his activism, a 14-year podcast and two books. Is it really a wonder that government and religion have been so closely entwined for millennia? Both are designed to convince others that a select few of their betters know the truth, implicitly giving them the right to rule them. This is the vast confidence game of government, apart from the reliance on brute force. Physical intimidation is a necessary but not sufficient means for maintaining power. To maintain power over a much larger group, gaslighting and self-delusion are indispensable. The ancient and medieval lords who went around busting heads until they got what they wanted 
worked hand in glove with whichever religious order was most useful. The priests got their share of the loot if their psychological warfare bore fruit. I have come across people in the 21st century still convinced that their political leaders were chosen by God. This might even be true, but again, where is the proof? The U.S. Constitutional Convention met under the guise of revising the Articles of Confederation. They met in secret while those who supposedly represented the people, consisting of white property-owning males, quietly overturned those articles to create an executive power. Never mind that this was completely contrary to the idea that states were sovereign. This is where we turn to the social contract. Those who had never voted for a representative all of a sudden magically agreed to whatever those people decided. Even more ridiculous, so did their unborn children and grandchildren. No contracts were signed, and how could they be with a secret ballot? According to the U.S. law, no one under 18 is able to sign a contract, yet children are still subject to this alleged jurisdiction. Not only that, the founding fathers and legislators who made up this government are all dead, which generally ends any agreement. Yet now, there were people with guns running around informing them they were citizens and must do as we were told. This is where the Socratic method comes into play. One should ask, what facts or evidence are there to prove that the Constitution slash statutes apply to me? Allegedly, in the courts provided by the U.S. monopoly of force, jurisdiction may be challenged at any time. It is also true that by federal rules of evidence, similar in nearly every state of the U.S., that one may not argue without evidence in a court of law. This is the essence of Socratic method. We ask the question, and if there is no logical answer backed up by evidence, then that argument carries no weight. This is a concept we all understand without the benefit of a law degree. The ancient Greeks supposedly invented democracy, albeit practiced only by the self-appointed pillars of the community. No women, slaves, or other undesirables allowed. It is also not a wonder that Socrates was condemned to death for speaking the truth, or corrupting the use as it was told. Yet at his trial, Socrates went along without questioning the court's jurisdiction. Was this how he truly felt, or had he already resigned himself to his fate? Did he ponder the true nature of the state in the same fashion as he questioned the gods? A more thorough scientific analysis of government reveals its true nature, as the French political economist and legislator Frederick Bastiat observed, government is a means by which everyone attempts to live at the expense of everyone else. As he observed, certain laws would be pushed through, such as customs duties for some particular region. From the beginning, this is merely a means of restricting the free market by limiting customer choices. The duties paid by the consumer go to the state. Much of this goes to all those customs inspectors now required to enforce protectionism and plunder. We've seen it in the 21st century in the embodiment of the TSA, or as one flight attendant termed them, thousands standing around. As time passes, others get this same idea, either to restrict markets or to push through pet projects that cannot stand on their own. This is what we call special interests. When pointing out to a friend that he was merely pushing his special interests, he became indignant of course, defending his project as being vital to the community. This is the same argument all special interests engage in. If it were not for armed men forcing you to pay them, this great benefit could not be achieved. There is really no valid argument here as services which are truly needed would be provided far more efficiently by voluntary agreements between consumers and suppliers. So the pit gets deeper and deeper as more groups game the system to get their particular needs satisfied. 
One might even say that politics is the dark side of economics, or a means of pursuing economic outcomes through the bypassing of fair competition and free markets. Politics and government are a distortion of trade, which is really what defines us as human beings in the first place. We each learn to apply exceptional skills in our particular area to create overabundance, which we exchange for that overabundance of others. This is what has elevated mankind in spite of politics, which is only an ideology of plunder or deceit. If people were honest, we could even apply our logic to war itself. If some ruler had to come about hat in hand, asking everyone for money to conduct a war, how many would pitch in? If this were the case, I dare say very few. Security, including military, courts, schools, roads, with more than can be listed here, may all be provided by a voluntary contract. For Mr. Stevens, quote, If I force people to buy my goods or services at the point of a gun, would you consider me a criminal? Unquote. We may be drifting a bit from our conceptions of science, but does science not start with critical thinking? In discovering Mark Stevens, Lysander Spooner, Murray Rothbard, Frederick Bastiat, Ludwig von Mises, and others, I was initially embarrassed. With a BS and MA in physics and some grasp of logic, I had never applied this to the institutions around me. When we are indoctrinated from birth to just accept the word of so-called authorities, why would we ever question them? Yet great thinkers like Socrates, Aristotle, and Descartes taught us that we must question everything. We see the cancel culture of today in its latest embodiment of the elite condemning us or attempting to silence us simply for asking questions, just for seeking the truth. In the words of Richard Feynman, I prefer questions that cannot be answers to answers that cannot be questioned. I hope you've enjoyed this program, written and presented by author Michael James Sharon, in conjunction with my many science fiction novels. Please visit the website, michaelsbookcorner.com, to see what is on offer. A complimentary ebook is available for joining the mailing list. This podcast is available on most outlets such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, Anchor FM, Amazon, and also on YouTube under the playlist Science or Fiction. Look for the host on Instagram, medium.com, or Twitter under at classic underscore sci underscore phi. Thank you.